Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. Good morning. Uh, my name's Kayla. Today's passage, it comes from Hebrews chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 5. When I'm finished reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. I am so thankful to, uh, to see you all. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is uh, Michael Badger, and I'm one of the, uh, the pastors here at Redeemer Church. Um, I, uh, again, I'm thankful that we can come together like this and just, man, sing praises to our Savior and to dive into His Word. It is such a wonderful privilege that I, I hope we don't take for granted this morning. Now, before we <clears throat> get going, one of the things that, uh, that I feel like I need to tell you about this sermon before we go too much further is that it's actually going to be one of the shortest sermons that I've Give it in quite a while, and if I hear an amen, you're out of here, all right? So, all right. Come on. Kayla, stop clapping. Now, the reason why it is going to be so short is because as I began to study and prep this week, my, my original intention was to go through the entirety of chapter 8 in the book of Hebrews. But as I sat down and as I began the writing process, I realized that I, I really wanted to spend more time covering verses 6 through 13 in, in a little bit greater detail. Which meant that, because of the way that I had already started doing things, verses 1 through 5 would be a bit shorter of a sermon. So for those of you who struggle with rumbling bellies on Sunday morning, I just wanted to say, you're welcome. All right. Now, in John 14, 6, in John 14, 6, Jesus calls himself what? The way, the truth, and the life. He is the culmination of of what all of those words mean at their deepest level. And he's the one and only way to have access to God. He is the ultimate truth from which reality springs forth. And in him, and only in him, can someone find life that persists into eternity. But the author of Hebrews has a concern. He has a concern that those he is speaking to in the first century church are in danger of exchanging the truth of Christ for shadows. But before we explore that further, please pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, I am so thankful that you have yet again brought us all here together. God, what a, a, a joyful time that we can have this morning because you have given us your word that we have access to. That is a, a grand and great privilege. And so we thank you so much for that. But Lord, as we explore this passage and as we dive into, uh, into this sermon, God, I pray, Lord, that above all else, that your Holy Spirit is the one who is guiding us this morning. There are going to be some, some hard truths that we're going to be touching upon. And so, God, I pray that you help us just move our emotions to the side for just a moment to, to really be able to hear, Lord, what you want us to hear from this message. Lord, we love you. I pray that you guide us this morning. In your son's holy and precious name, amen. Now, as we enter into verse 1 of chapter 8 here in Hebrews, the author is really just wanting to sum up everything that we have seen so far from about chapter 4 until now. We have been told, really, of our need, of our great need of a high priest that is holy and perfect and just completely and totally free from sin. A high priest who is superior to, to all other high priests who came before him, who is in the order of Melchizedek and who alone is fit to meet our, our terrible and desperate spiritual need. We, we need that kind of high priest. And the good news is, the author tells us in verse 1, is that we have such a great high priest. That's good news. And then the author says something that is meant to take our minds back to the very first chapter of Hebrews. Verse 3, specifically. Do you remember what it said? I'm sure you have it memorized. Flip back there just a moment to the first chapter of Hebrews. Because it's worth the reminder. It's worth the reminder. Let's read Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, just because they're just so good. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these, in these last days, He spoke to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so these verses, and, and really all of chapter 1 of Hebrews, wants to paint this, this magnificent picture of Christ, seated high as the king of his creation, resplendent and majestic as he radiates the very same glory of God the Father. Right? He is, he is high and lifted up. He is sitting enthroned at the Father's right hand, a place of the utmost honor. And he is even now sovereignly ruling over the very created universe that he upholds by the word of his power. And brothers and sisters, this is, this is an image of our Savior as King. He is King. He is King Jesus. Do, do you recognize that? 
that he is a king. And we should not allow that, that regal truth to slip from our minds. But here in Hebrews 8, verse 1, we again read, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, Melchizedek, if you remember from last week, and if you weren't here, go back and listen to Pastor Paul's message. It was, it was wonderful. But, but Melchizedek was the king of Salem. And likewise, or sorry, but, but he wasn't just a king, right? Melchizedek wasn't just a king, but what else was he? What else are we told that he was? He was a high priest. And so likewise... Jesus isn't just a, a sovereign and supreme king, right? And so when Jesus sat down at the Father's right hand, He didn't just do so as Lord of Lords, though He certainly did, but He also sat down as the great, compassionate, gentle, merciful, gracious High Priest. Isn't that amazing? Because I think, I think we have such a difficult time holding these two realities of Jesus together. We often want to think of one to the exclusion of the other. And the problem with that is if we don't hold these two realities together, the reality of Jesus as king and Jesus as high priest, if we don't hold those things together, then we can often end up warping both of them. If you think of, of Jesus as only the high and lifted up king, there's a, there's a good chance that you may begin to think of him as a harsh and even bitter king who is ready to condemn us or, or crush us, as Paul mentioned earlier, at any given moment, if we just step a foot out of line. Or maybe we even think of him as, as just too great and mighty and transcendent, too busy with doing his, his kingly work to give the likes of us a, a second thought. I mean, why would the king of the universe, who is actively holding everything together, want to hear about the, the petty complications of my own life, right? Or maybe we go in the complete opposite direction, Right? And as we think and meditate only on Jesus as our great high priest to the exclusion of Jesus as our king, we can sometimes think of only the great love of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus, which are wonderful things, which are true things to hold dear. But sometimes we can lose sight of his holiness. We can lose sight of, of his glory. And friends, we can lose sight of his justice. And so you see, as believers, we have to be able to hold both things at the same time. We have to recognize that the same Jesus who wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, the same Jesus who beckons us believers to find peace and joy in him, who died to save sinners, is the exact same Jesus who is coming again and who is going to exercise his kingly justice and judge the wicked and cast them to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We can't have one to the exclusion of the other. We as believers must have a fully formed Christology. And that is just a fancy, uh, fancy term for a fully formed understanding of who Christ is. 
Jesus is the King of glory who deserves all worship and adoration before whom all nations will one day bow. And He is the great High Priest who grants us mercy and help in our time of need. That is who sits at the right hand of the Father right now. When we want to focus on one truth above the other, and friends, we can be in danger of worshiping a Jesus crafted by our own mind, by our own wishes. But friends, if, if you're a believer in this room, if you've placed your faith in Christ, if you've repented from your sins, then, then I hope that you want to love and worship and serve the true Jesus as revealed to us in Scripture. Because it is Him in His fullness who is altogether lovely. Right? Now, I don't want to spend a, a whole lot of time in, in verses 2 through 5, mostly because we have talked uh, in depth quite a bit in previous sermons about the things that, that, that these verses touch on. But allow me to, to go over them just, just briefly. And if you haven't been here, I'd really encourage you to go back and, and listen to some of our previous sermons that led up to this one. But Pastor Paul last week mentioned a, a word or a term called type. Remember that? Type. Now, another word or two that we can use for the word type can actually be seen in verse 5 here in Hebrews 8. It is the, the words copy and shadow. Copy and shadow. That's essentially what, what type means. Now, the overarching point that the author is making in verses 2 through 5 is that, that everything about the work of the high priests in the Old Covenant, even down to the place where they did their ministry, where they went to work, was a shadow or a copy of the true reality that was yet to come. Right? And so take a quick look at verses 1 through 2, and you can start kind of seeing what I, what I mean by that. It says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a great high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In verse 2, A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, this might seem somewhat confusing at first because we are told that Jesus is ministering in the holy places. And that simply means that he is ministering in heaven where he is seated. And if you remember from last week, and I think the week before that, we spoke about how one of the things that Christ does as our great high priest, even now, is intercede for us to the Father or with the Father. And so if you're a believer, this means that one of the priestly duties that Christ is still fulfilling right now is actually praying for you specifically to the Father. That's amazing, right? Christ Jesus, for you specifically, is interceding on your behalf, even now, praying to the Father. That's incredible. That's how much care and love that He has for you specifically. And for his church as a whole. And he does this priestly work in heaven. But you notice that he calls heaven, he calls the, the holy places, the true tent that the Lord set up. Right? And if you jump down uh, to the second sentence, to the second sentence of verse 5, you will see what this tent is referring to. 
You see, when God made his covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai, and this is the covenant that we mean when we say the old covenant, this covenant that he made with Moses, where he received the law on stone tablets, God also gave him instructions on how to build what was essentially a portable temple called the tabernacle. Just say that with me, tabernacle. It's really fun to say, actually, tabernacle. There you go, yeah, it's really fun. So as the Israelites were wandering around the desert, they would take this portable temple with them, and it was just essentially this big tent that they could put up and take down. And in this portable temple tent is where the original high priest, Aaron and his sons, would make the animal sacrifices on behalf of the people. But the reality is, this tent, this tabernacle, And the grand temple in Jerusalem that would come after were all just a copy of the true and better tent. The true temple of heaven that wasn't made with sinful human hands, but was constructed by the king himself. And in this better, more perfect and holy tent is where the true great high priest, the one whom all other high priests, including Melchizedek, were but a shadow of, would do his ministry. The tabernacle was, was meant to be an earthly representation of heaven. That's what it was meant to be. Now, verse 3 continues this theme of copies and shadows by saying, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. And this priest meaning Jesus. Now, the logic of this verse is actually pretty straightforward, right? If the earthly high priests were appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and they were to be a shadow of the one to come, then it would make sense that it would be necessary for the heavenly high priest to also have something to offer. Right? That just, that just kind of makes logical sense. The logic there flows really easily. Now, we went into this in far more detail in our first sermon on chapter 5. So again, go back and listen to that particular verse. But the, the something... The something that Christ offered was infinitely more costly and infinitely more effective than the gifts and sacrifices presented by the earthly high priests. Their offerings consisted of animals' blood, which could only secure forgiveness of sins just momentarily. But our high priest, our great high priest, his sacrifice, friends, was his own body. It was his own body, and he brought his own blood into the heavenly holy place to secure the forgiveness of his people, not just, not just momentarily, and not, not just for a day, and not just for a year, but forever. And not just the sins that you've committed in the past, but the sins that you are committing right now, the sins that you will commit in the future. His gift, his offering was perfect, was perfect for covering all sins, for his people, for all time. And as verse 4 says, if Jesus was on earth, he would actually not be a high priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Now essentially this is saying that Jesus wouldn't qualify to be an earthly priest, not only because of his being a priest of a different order, of the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron, but also because the gifts that he offers, they just transcend those that are required in the Levitical law, like we just said. I mean, what was required 
by the law was, again, animal sacrifices. But what was truly needed to take care of the problem of sin once and for all was something that the law could not provide. The blood of the Lamb of God. And so, friends, in in summary, the tabernacle, the high priesthood, the sacrificial system, all of it, all of it, was but a shadow. But Christ is the reality. He is the ultimate truth that everything that came before in the Old Covenant spoke in whispers about. Now, I want us, at this point, just kind of take a pause for a moment to remember the entire context of the book of Hebrews. I want us to remember why the author is writing this book or or preaching this sermon to begin with. Why he is so intentional about telling his audience that everything that came before in the Old Covenant was all meant as a picture pointing to him. Because I think that if we forget the context that these brothers and sisters in Christ were living in during this this particular time, if we forget the context that the author is speaking into, friends, sometimes we can just miss the gravity and the importance of what is being communicated to us through God's Word. And so I want you to remember that the believers being addressed in the book of Hebrews are Christians in the first century. And not only that, but they're also predominantly Jewish believers. And during this time, there was severe persecution being placed upon the church, either by the Roman Empire or by the Jewish religious elites, who both wanted to see Christianity just snuffed out. And so these brothers and sisters of ours from two millennia ago are facing a type of persecution. They're facing life circumstances that, friends, we as Western Christians just struggle to understand, that we struggle to grasp. And so when you you drove to church this morning, were you in fear of being followed? Were you in fear of being found out and dragged in front of your peers, in front of your entire community, and put to death in some of the most horrific ways that you could imagine? Is that something that that you were truly afraid of this morning? Imagine not. Well, friends, this was the reality of many of those ancient believers in the first century church. And I am convinced that it is a reality that only those believers in the most persecuted parts of our world now could ever begin to fully comprehend. And because of this terrible persecution, friends, there was a temptation on their hearts to go back to Judaism. Now, as I say that, I want us to have a a little compassion and understanding. I'm not saying that that falling to that temptation is, is right, because it would be, of course, sinful to do so, and they would be like the apostates spoken of in chapter 6. But we must have the humility to say that we just don't understand that type of pressure, that type of fear that they lived in daily because of their faith in Christ. I mean, can you, can you imagine it? Just for, just for a moment, close your eyes and just think about it. Going, going 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years or more living in constant persecution that could lead to your death because for the specific reason 
of your faith. And so as I said, these ancient brothers and sisters in Christ were being tempted to leave behind the truth for the shadow. But I want us to just imagine what was going through their minds. I thought you said Jesus was king. We thought you said that Christ took care of all of our sins on the cross, and yet here we are struggling with temptation and doubt, and here we are putting ourselves, putting our lives on the line because we're hoping in things we can't see. Not only that, friends, but the, but the Old Testament sacrificial system was very appealing. That might seem absurd to us modern-day Christians who would think of animal sacrifices as, as stomach-turning. But think about it this way. These, these Jewish people, they, they knew they had a sin problem. They, they knew that. And the Old Testament sacrificial system gave them a very sensory, a very task-oriented way to solve their sin problem. I mean, they could just bundle up all of their sins that they committed over the last year. They could, they could bring them along with them, with their sacrifice, into the temple so that on that, that one special day of the year, on, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and through the, the giving of their sacrifice, and through the sacrifice that is given by the, the high priest on their behalf, all of their sins for that year could just be taken care of. It could just be wiped away. And so to go back to this was really appealing, especially in the face of persecution especially in the face of being called to believe in a once and for all sacrifice that they may not have even been there to see. Right? Most of these, most of these believers, these early Christian believers, didn't even see Christ die on the cross. Probably didn't even see Him when He rose again. And so maybe their forgiveness didn't feel as certain as it did maybe before, when they were still in Judaism. And so for these early Christians... There was so much temptation. There was so much temptation to give up what is true in Christ for those things that were put in place to anticipate Him. And this is why the author of Hebrews, friends, is going to such great lengths to explain all of this stuff about Christ being the great high priest and how everything else from the priesthood to the sacrifices to the temple itself were just copies of the heavenly realities. He is doing this because he wants them to hold tightly on to Christ, who is their true and only hope for the forgiveness of their sins and their eternal salvation. So friends, my, my, my heart, my, my, my hope for you this morning is for us to plainly see the relevance of this passage for our own hearts. I want us to see that we too have temptations to exchange truth for shadows. Now while we as predominantly non-Jewish believers don't have the same temptation to leave Christ for Judaism, and we still have temptations to replace our hope in Christ with something else. This is a thing that we as Redeemer Church have been hitting on a lot. And when I say we at Redeemer Church, it's really been me. And, I, and I, so I don't mean to sound like a broken record. 
But I think that the Holy Spirit, friends, is, is working on something in so many of our lives in regards to this specifically. And so I want to share with you a passage that I've shared to a, uh, with a few others. And, and it's a passage that has just been just burdening my heart lately. It is Psalms, or Psalm 112, verses 7 through 8. Psalm 112, verses 7 through 8. And I forgot to make this slide. Uh, but if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Psalm 112. Now, the entirety of Psalm 112 is speaking of what is generally true of the righteous, godly person. The righteous, godly person. But I want you to hone in specifically on verses 7 through 8, which say this. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. And my question for you is, friends, do these two verses cut you to the heart? Do these two verses cut you to the heart? Just, just think on that for a moment. I mean, friends, how often have you sat by your phone because you knew that something was going on, Rather, whether it be with yourself or somebody that you knew or somebody that you loved, and, and you were terrified of what that phone call was going to bring? How many of you get anxiety simply just waking up in the morning because you don't know what news is going to be brought to your doorstep? How many of you are afraid to speak to someone because you're afraid they're going to tell you something that you don't like? But the righteous person is not afraid of bad news. But why? But why? How can this person not fear bad, horrific, paralyzingly awful news? Friends, it is because his heart his hope is not rooted, is not found in the person or events that happen in this earthly life. That's why. But rather, his heart is firm, is unmovable, because his ultimate trust is not placed in the things or, or the people of this world, but in the Lord who has made us, made you, believer, specific, good, glorifying, sanctifying, everlasting promises that cannot be taken away by any piece of bad news that you may ever receive. No matter how tragic it might be. I'm sorry? Yeah, I can share it with you afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. In verse 8 of Psalm 12, 112 says, The righteous person, the righteous person has a heart that is steady, a heart that is at peace. That's what a steady heart is. A steady heart is a heart that is at peace, and he will not be afraid. And friends, I don't know about you, but I long to live a fearless life. That's not the life I lead currently right now, but I aspire to it. But I long to live a fearless life, and not because I, I become just so just courageous, or because I have this, this false sense of grandeur about my own person. But friends, I long to live fearlessly because I, through the help of the Holy Spirit, refuse to place my hope in Christ. I refuse to, to replace my hope in Christ. 
With a shadow. With a shadow. Friends, the only way that I can stand firm, the only way that that I can have a steady heart that is at peace in the face of temptation and trials and enemies of all kinds is by putting my complete confidence, not in myself, not, not in control, not in comfort, not in other people, not in my health. Not in, not in doctors, not in, not in anything else, but in my Savior Christ Jesus. Amen. It is He who gives me victory over it all. Right? As 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Christ Jesus. And friends, this is why the author of Hebrews is so passionate for his audience to cling to Christ. Because it is only by holding on to him that they could defeat the fear of persecution. It is only by clinging on to him that they could defeat doubt and they could defeat the temptation to go back to these shadows and copies. Now, I don't don't want you to hear me wrong and I don't want you to read this passage wrong in Psalm 112. Trusting in Christ does not mean bad news will never come. And it does not mean that the enemies of this life will not hurt you. But trusting in Christ means that you don't have to be afraid. Because the story of your life that He has written for you, friends, ends in glory. It ends in glory. There's nothing that can change that. Now, I, I have Psalm 23 up here. It's probably one of the most popular passages in in all of Scripture. But because it's one of the most popular passages in all of Scripture, we can also, we can can be tempted to look at it flippantly. We can be tempted to look at it uh, and take it for granted. But friends, I want us to to, to read this passage together. Because, Because friends, this is the heart. This is the heart that the author of Hebrews desires for his readers, including us, to have. And as I, as I read it, and as you read it, I really I, I want you to take it to heart. I want you to, to look at this and know that this is God speaking to you. This is the heart that he wants you to have and that you can have through the power of the Holy Spirit if you put your hope, not in shadows, but in him. This is written to you, believer. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. How many of us need that right now? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And hear this, friends, and rejoice. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for how long? Forever. Friends, those early believers were being tempted to switch out the name of the Lord in that passage for something else. For the old sacrificial system, for Judaism, 
So let us, with all urgency, fight that same temptation to replace our hope in Christ with something else. Friends, let us not say, I am my shepherd. Friends, let us not say, earthly security is my shepherd. My friends are my shepherd. My comfort is my shepherd. My work is my shepherd. Because when we do that, friends, the rest of this passage just breaks down. And fear quickly finds its way into our hearts. And so, brothers and sisters, let us follow the urging of the author of Hebrews and hold fast to the truth of Christ and not leave him for a shadow that has no power to save. Let us hold fast to our kingly great high priest who lived perfectly, who bore our sins on the cross and died so that his blood could wash us clean. And the beauty of his perfect righteousness would cover us and allow us to stand in his presence with joy in our hearts and a song of praise on our lips. Please pray with me. Lord, you are so good. Lord, we know that we, God, had a sin problem. Lord, we had a rebellion problem. But God, you sent your son, our king, to be our great high priest. To offer a sacrifice in the heavenly places that no one else could ever possibly offer. His own life. Also that we can be forgiven of our sins. Also that we could spend eternity in your presence forevermore. But Lord, we are so tempted to exchange the hope that we have in Christ with something lesser. Lord, when we do that, we are building our lives on sand, not on the solid foundation of your Son. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that you protect us from that temptation, that through your Holy Spirit, God, you allow us to continue to put our confidence and put our hope in Christ Jesus and nowhere else. And I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.